Hey, live from AC Second Fans, this is Chris Garretts of Nothing Rhymes with Garretts fame. I have another podcast called the Pietist Schoolman Podcast that runs on the Christian Humanist Network. As we start our kind of mini third season on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we thought we would simulcast or a simul podcast on both networks. Enjoy. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, the Christianity that lies on the other side of the 95 Theses, we're talking about the faith of the Middle Ages. Welcome to the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garrett, joined again by Sam Mulberry, producing this episode and talking with me about the Reformation as it reaches its 500th anniversary. So, Sam, last week we started with memory and commemoration, and you had an interesting question, which I had not really anticipated, and so I don't know if I responded all that um, knowledgeably or cohesively to it, but you had asked, like, how... You know, in so many words, how big a deal is this, at least in America? And I think you were partly getting at, like, popular culture. Sure. And you talked about places where you kind of... And, and I think at one point I said something like, well, maybe, you know, if you're a devoted Christian, you'll have seen it. And then I was talking with my wife about our church and a couple others, and it seemed like Lutheran churches were making a big deal about this. Like, even when we were in Virginia last fall, we attended an ELCA church in, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and, like, on Reformation Sunday that year, it was like, okay, we're starting our year-long kind of commemoration of the Reformation, and it's led in lots of interesting directions. But our church isn't doing a whole lot. Like, we always do a Reformation Sunday thing, and I assume we'll do it. But, like, other than that, there's not even an adult Sunday school class. Like, is that your sense? Or Yeah, I you know, we go to a couple churches, and we, go, we share a church. We share a church, and, yeah. um But the other church I go to, and it doesn't surprise me that we're not talking about, that it hasn't come up, but... Um, it is kind of interesting because actually yeah. that church is ostensibly a Lutheran church, right? Yeah, yeah. but not really, um, not really, right? But no, it, you know, I, it is interesting. Like, I kind of forget that it's coming up. Um, you know, I was starting to talk to my kids about Halloween, and that made me realize, like, oh yeah, this is the this is like the big one, and <laughs> that's the cue. Yeah, and I'm not yeah. sure how how big it is. Well, and even here at Bethel, I feel like um, Bethel Seminary, San Diego had something that i don't know if it was like a day-long conference i'm not sure like i don't feel like i've heard a lot here about it and well and part of it is like what is the appropriate way to celebrate well right yeah to go back to the but i did then try to crowdsource this so i wrote a blog post on pietist schoolman yesterday and just asked as many readers as wanted to to weigh in and and you know uh, a we're doing something special something unique b we're, well we always do reformation sunday but other than that nothing and then c nothing and, and 60% actually said their church was doing something. Oh, cool. No, that's, I'm sure it's a small sample size. And but, only, but how many church? I wonder how many of those churches do Reformation Sunday regularly. Well, I should have actually, I should have had like a fourth category. Like normally you do nothing, but this year we're doing something. My guess is those are churches that usually have something and they're amping it up. And so most of those people didn't follow up with a comment to explain. But usually it was adult Sunday school class. Like one of them is a Calvin prof who... You know, George Marsden is in the neighborhood, and he can do a Sunday school class. And the other, I think there was maybe a special, like, Saturday night service where they weren't quite sure it was about Reformation 500, but they couldn't imagine any other reason they were doing it. 
So mm-hmm. it, it, it's out there. So I guess, uh, listeners, I'm curious. So uh, go to the Christian Humanist podcast page or go to my blog's uh, page or the, the Facebook page and let us know, like, what is or isn't your church doing about Reformation 500? And, and a more fun version of that question is also, like, what would be the most Luther thing you could do on October 31st? I keep hoping that we show up on October 31st and there are 95 theses all over the place of different issues that people want to want to talk about. It's just okay. a way to vent. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, so that was last week. I'm sure we'll keep coming back to the theme of commemoration, but now we want to dig into history a little bit more and uh, maybe the theme of a usable past. Now, uh, I feel like every week we should do the reminder that we are not really experts on this. We are not Reformation historians. We just play them on TV or on the radio. In the classroom. In the classroom, time. mostly. <laughs> and so that's what we're, we're doing this as uh, a kind of teachable past and thought we'd then share it beyond our Bethel classrooms. So this week, Sam, before we get into the story of Luther and subsequent Protestant reformers and then, you know, the Catholic Reformation, I, mean, I thought we ought to at least spend a little time thinking what precedes all of this because Luther is not reforming the church in the abstract. He is not a Christian in the abstract. He is a medieval Christian reforming the medieval church or a late medieval Christian reforming the late medieval church. And I guess the first thing that occurred to me is I think, you know, especially in an anniversary like this, our temptation is to emphasize this as a, as a rupture. This is a break between the medieval and the modern. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll come back to this before this series is done. We'll talk about how the Reformation paves the way, for better or worse, for modernization. And um, I'll talk about, like, Brad Gregory's book, which is not especially thrilled, and then others really celebrate it. We talked about that last week. But in some ways, like, we should be wary of that. Like, we shouldn't make the mistake of uh, obscuring just how medieval Luther is in some ways. And so I'm sure at some point we'll talk about his politics and his social conservatism and his response to the you know, non-religious revolutions of the 1520s and 30s. But you know, in, in some ways, even the nature of his devotion, the nature of how he thinks about the sacrament, he doesn't entirely discard this past. And so I think just to understand him, it's worth thinking about. But, you know, the other good reason is that in some ways the Protestant Reformation does eclipse medieval Christianity. And in some ways we might celebrate that on the 500th. But maybe what we should really focus on as as people at a Protestant institution who may be prone to celebrating that, what have we lost because of that? Sure. So we, we do talk about this in class, and so I'm sure we both have some ideas. But our kind of featured book for this week that I know we both have read at least parts of and we're going to pick up some themes from is uh, by a former Bethel colleague of ours, Chris Armstrong. Uh, Chris uh, taught church history here at Bethel Seminary for a long time, did some things for us in the, in courses we teach, and then has moved on to Wheaton College where he directs uh, Opus, which is a program on faith and work. But he still helps edit Christian History Magazine, and in the midst of this move, he kept working on a book that he started blogging about in 2009, 2010 or so. At, at that point, he called it a Medieval Wisdom for Modern Protestants. And when it came out last year from Brazos Press, it was retitled Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. And I, I think that's probably fair. I think, you know, in some ways, Catholics are very modern people, too, and can recover medieval sure. wisdom as, as much. But, you know, it's certainly mostly aimed at a Protestant and evangelical audience. I mean, people who stand in the shadow of Luther have been shaped by the Protestant reformers. And, and maybe Chris wants to suggest, you know, gently but firmly, have, have lost something. Mm-hmm. It also implies that, that, that the big split might be medieval and modern and not Catholic, you know, and, Catholic Protestant. and Protestant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which maybe we can come back to. But let, let's just start there. You know, either I mean, there are a couple of things I want to pull out of Chris's book to talk about, and he's got several. I mean, I don't know if we'll get to ethics and healthcare or even related to scholasticism is a big thing we talk about. 
But, you know, either from his book or from when you've taught, like, you teach a medieval religion lecture, you've done Reformation lectures for us, like, what, what's, what, to get us started, what's a big thing that we as modern Protestants or just as modern Christians have lost from the wisdom of medieval Christianity? Uh, I, I think the, the, Wow, this is, there's so many things that it, like I'm trying to think which direction to go. Well, I think I think one of the things is because of the medieval understanding of grace. So mm-hmm. I should say um, one of the ways that I always talk with students when we talk about Luther and grace and Luther's understanding of medieval grace is that um, and this is this, there's a significance to why this, this this distinction. But for Luther, grace is an all or nothing proposition. You either have grace or you don't. And if you have it, you have the totality of it. Where medievals think grace comes in pieces. So you could have more or less. And what I, what's important about that isn't that they think you could have more or less. And it's not about that you could compare yourself to somebody else. Because you don't have a little grace meter to know that. But what's important about that is it's tied to the idea that medieval people think that like that sin really matters right. and sin has ramifications in this life and the next life. And it's not, when I, I taught this, the, this medieval religion lecture a few weeks ago and I, I kept telling students who are largely Protestants and, and I know uh, Protestants thinking about grace tend to think of it in ter- or even think about their relationship with God in terms of salvation. And I, so I started the lecture by saying, we have to put on lenses that tell us that grace is about more than just salvation. Because the effects of sin doesn't mean necessarily you lose your salvation, but you lose connection to God and you lose purity. And that sin has those ramifications. And I think, and I don't, I don't think this isn't necessarily an intended consequence of Luther, but but that's definitely a, a piece that comes out of that shift is we, we get this, when you think about grace as an all or nothing thing, you tend to think about salvation as an all or nothing thing. And you tend to focus only on, not only on salvation, but largely on salvation as the big deal mm-hmm. that I think you miss some of those other things. Yeah, or you view salvation purely in forensic, juridical, will you be declared righteous? Yes. Regardless of what your life has actually been like. Right. right? And purity matters for the medievals. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, so in a way in which you do kind of see that medievalism of Luther, like one of his famous slogans is that we're simultaneously sinner and saint. You know, he's liberated Mm -hmm. by this rediscovery as he thinks of it as grace, but that does not obscure his recognition that that sin fundamentally runs through him. And, And even with if you want to think of it as his conversion experience and this radical sense of being loved and forgiven, he knows that he is still a sinner. And I think Protestants generally continue to wrestle with this. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago, I think it was Will Willeman, who's a Methodist um, bishop, I think wrote for Christianity Today about Protestants always wrestling with grace and holiness. And sometimes we lean too much in one direction, especially in the kind of Wesleyan, Pietist, mm-hmm. Pentecostal tradition like we want to be optimistic about it. it's it's not just justification. We you know this grace is this transformative thing in our lives, but you know sometimes then we lose the kind of radical forgiveness of grace, and sometimes we lean so much on that. Like I remember we had a colleague who had complained. The Bethel students who had this attitude of you have to be you have to sin to be saved. Right, like a very cavalier saved sense. From, yeah, right, yeah. and we lose the sense of but we're supposed to grow in holiness, and that that takes discipline and like. So I, I was—I I didn't do the lecture on medieval religion for for this course we we both teach, but in small group I always like to spend some time thinking about penance, and we have them read a kind of early medieval penitential by the Venerable Bede, and partly just to kind of emphasize the, the sort of pragmatism and the practicality of it and the kind of nuance of it. And I'm sure I would not have enjoyed penance. You know, I've, I've read enough to know like priests are trained to ask prying questions, and you know it's not always especially gracious. There is a 
kind of legalism to it. But I also tell students, like, there's something psychologically uh, um, intuitive about the idea that you should not bury this either. And that you actually, A, need to bring it into the open to be self-aware and honest and to understand that even though you are forgiven, you know, there is work to be done here. And there's an educational process associated with penance that, I don't know, I, I feel like that was not part of my upbringing. There is, there is shame mm-hmm. that was certainly there. And maybe there's a sense of grace as well to kind of counteract it. But I think there was something lost in the middle between those two things. Um, I also know, having done this podcast conversation, a version of it with you, like uh, sometimes Protestants kind of glamorize confession and reconciliation as if it's this wonderful. And maybe yeah. having grown up Catholic, well, I don't know. And, and I have to way. say, like, like my whole lens through, I mean, it feels like reading a piece of like pre-Vatican II uh, Catholic young adult fiction, which I read a lot of as a kid, even though I grew up post-Vatican II. But like, because I, my, all my experiences with this are sort of from 18 and younger. So like there's the, it's the sort of comical anxiety of like, you're an eight year old getting ready to give confession. And you're trying to think like, I got to think of something to say, you know, you don't like, it would be really interesting now to be like, if I went and, and, and did confession right now, like how different it would be because I wouldn't need to think about like, what am I going to talk about? It would be like, instead it would be, how do I, I think, I think the anxiety of me would be like, how do I frame what I say? So it comes mm-hmm. off. Um, so it comes off appropriately, but I, but I don't want to get too dark, but I don't want like, you know, cause so, so I, so yeah, so, so a lot of my experiences as, as, a, but I, but I think as, as a young kid, but I think that's a, um, that's a big piece of it is, is that, that sense of like, you're going to lay something bare, and um, and then I think that the idea of penitential work. Now I don't. I will say this. I uh, my experience. The more powerful thing than penance is absolution. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we talk with our students about how like, it's important that in the sacrament of confession that absolution comes before penance. Right. You don't need to earn uh, forgiveness from God. You don't need to earn right relationship with God. That's where the grace part comes in. The work is about right relationship and reconciliation. And I remember feeling the power of absolution. And that's, I think, is the that's the analog to the, uh, the Protestant, like, feeling the power of grace and feeling yep. loved and forgiven, you know, that there is this sense of, you know, like, oh, like, what if I really am clean right now? Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, so I think that that's um, that's a good starting point. Let me pull out a theme now from Chris's book because uh, there are many we can talk about here. But because we're both historians, let me talk about how medievals understand the past. And I should add here that the subtitle of Chris's book is "Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis," which. I mean, I think the notion Chris wants us to play with is one that would be familiar to historians, that visiting the past is like visiting a foreign country, and that for these titular modern Christians, the Middle Ages is a really foreign country, and so you need a tour guide. And who better than C.S. Lewis, who is someone who's known and trusted by a wide array of modern 21st century Christians, but also happen to be a scholar of medieval and Renaissance literature. And so a big source, if you want to kind of go straight to Lewis on this, is his last book. It was published the year after he died in 1964, called The Discarded Image. Um, I think uh, like something like a survey of medieval and Renaissance literature. And so one passage from The Discarded Image that Chris cites is in his chapter on, uh, he calls it getting rooted, the medieval understanding of tradition. Uh, so let me read here. So this is, if you want to follow along in your book, Sam, it's page uh, 59. <laughs> Uh, So I'll skip to this. So it starts with Chris, and then he'll jump to Lewis. 
From, for the medieval person, tradition was not past, but present. And it was not merely intellectual, like some card file of truths that one drags out in an argument. Tradition was a matter of the heart. Historically, writes Lewis, medieval man stood at the foot of a stairway. Looking up, he felt delight, unquote. And Chris adds, delight in the warmth of companionship. And now we go on uh, with Lewis for a while. The saints looked down on one's spiritual life. The kings, sages, and warriors in one's secular life. The great lovers of old in one's own amours. To foster, encourage, and instruct. There were friends, ancestors, patrons in every age. One had one's place, however modest, in the great succession. One need be neither proud nor lonely. Unquote. And Chris adds, In other words, the medieval person actively belonged to a family that stretched far back in time, and that family was constantly recognized. And so here he goes on to talk about the cult of the saints and prayers of intercession. So I, I wrote a kind of preview of this conversation on the anxious bench earlier this week, and th this is one of the themes I wanted to hit on, is like, I mean, I think we do a version of this. Like the first day of our Christianity Western culture class that we keep mentioning, we, we you kind should of just take them. it if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, you really should, because we, we kind of have them almost like look up, and there is a great cloud of witnesses, the language of Hebrews 12.1, looking down on you. You know, watching you in some ways, you know, they will be instructing you through words that are in your primary source reader packet. This is what we tell students. Um, you know, convicting you, challenging you, irritating you. But they, in a sense, like you are in a kind of relationship with them. Um, and, and so, like, that always comes back to me once we hit the Middle Ages mm -hmm. and run into a kind of piety that is so concerned with our relationship with the dead. Mm -hmm. And I think this is both a really alien thing for our students and in some way, I think, a really important thing for them to encounter. Right, because because it comes down to what is what is your relationship to that cloud? What what can you uh, – is that a one-way relationship? If it, if so, which way is it? Yeah, is it a two-way yeah. relationship? If so, what does that mean? You know, I think the, the way that we sometimes talk about this is sort of the veil between this life and the next is permeable. And there is this sense that, that – uh, that those people looking down on you aren't static and they're, they can be involved in a kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, what Chris argues is that this is something definitely lost, excuse me, by the Reformation, that the reformers, I think Chris's language is that they tend to have this idea that tradition are like barnacles that have accrued on the ship of the church. And they're, they're, they're things that um, are unnecessary and sometimes damaging, distracting, or parasitic. I mean, they have to be cleaned off, and that's the nature of the Reformation, is it has this kind of anti-traditional streak running through it. What else do we need but the Bible? And then we we'll come back to that. But, you know, I, I tend to think there's, I mean, it certainly contrasts with American supposed ahistoricism, the sense of, you know, we, we are completely free to remake ourselves, and, and we are not shackled by the past. We, we've got We've got all these frontiers that we're free to go out and, and start anew in. And I think there's just something honest about a medieval view of tradition to understand you are in a succession and you are not free of those people and the way their ideas continue to shape you. And then maybe even beyond that, there is something inspiring about them and there is something instructive about them. And there is a kind of um, layers of wisdom that have been built up over the time that continue to speak to us today. So, I mean, it does speak to a different kind of relationship with death and with the dead, and, and so a different kind of view of what life looks like, um, a different kind of sense of the church, too. You know, I mean, this is a kind of church that really does straddle past, present, and future. I mean, you've got all sorts of kinds of artistic ways and devotional ways and liturgical things that remind you of that when you participate in, in those um, in, in the life of the church. Yeah, what I often find myself, uh, when I talk with students about this, because then, then you, ease, you, you, you sort of easily move into saying, well, okay, how do people 
access those saints. And we talk about veneration of saints and relics and things like that. And the, the thing I find myself saying to students over and over again is just because something is corruptible, because the, this system, this understanding be, lays the groundwork for what ends up being a corrupt system mm-hmm. that these reformers are pushing up against, just because something's corruptible doesn't mean it's corrupt. Right. It means yeah. that – but because, because I think, like, we would be wrong to say, well – the Reformation, like they came up with something that was incorruptible. Yeah. It's like that just didn't happen. But they, they they saw corruption and they they tore it down largely, right? And and there's a little bit of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you know, in some of this. And yeah. I think I think that's probably a big theme of what we're looking at here is is some stuff that's pretty powerful and important gets gets lost in that in that transition. Right. So Sam, um, uh, I think the last chapter in Chris's book fuses a couple of special medieval paths, monasticism and mysticism. And it's a really interesting chapter. He argues that the monastics and mystics have a pretty holistic understanding. Like he has this whole nice thing about medieval mystics and their intellectual life, which you know, we, we tend to think of them as, as kind of um, super irrational or something, but they actually tend to be very thoughtful people. Um, I think you're a good person to talk to about monasticism because you had an interesting experience coming out of life at an evangelical pietist Baptist university. You went straight into a monastic community. I and I don't know how medieval it felt there down in Alabama, but do you want to reflect a little yeah, bit on Yeah, so so when I graduated from Bethel, my first year out of college, I worked uh, with a, through a Catholic volunteer program um, that was run by the Brothers of the Sacred Heart, which is a, a French order that was started in the 1800s. That's prevalent in sort of the Gulf Coast of the U.S. And then at least it was like in Brooklyn, but I don't know ah. if that still is there. But in the Gulf Coast, they still have like New Orleans, um, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, and uh, in Mobile, Alabama. And I was in Mobile. And I, I was basically, it was like a Teach for America kind of program. So I was a volunteer teacher at their school that they ran. But then I also lived in community with them. That was that was my housing and mm-hmm. my and my uh, my food. Um, so I functionally was part of that community for the sake of the 10 months that I was down there. So I don't want to say, like, I don't want to overplay this and be like, I was a monk for 10 months. I wasn't, but I kind of was because mm-hmm. um, uh, because I, I, I chose to, like, participate in their, in their community pretty deeply. And um, it's interesting, like, when we study St. Benedict especially. So Benedict comes along in this early 6th century um, during a pretty chaotic time in Western Europe, and he puts forth this communal monasticism that is uh, kind of set to bring order and stability back to life for people. And what's funny is when you're 22 and just graduated from college, you know, in, in 1999, life feels pretty unstable. Mm-hmm. You feel like it feels sort of like like your own personal fall of the empire. So, so I went and lived in this community where my food, my shelter, my work was provided for me, where we lived a life of kind of ordered prayer. So we would do um, morning prayers before this before the day started, the school day started, um, and then we would go to mass, and then after school we would do afternoon prayer. Um, I think there was one of the brothers was retired who I think did like midday prayer. I never went home for that. I don't know if other brothers did. And then um, I don't think there was an evening prayer. If there was, I wasn't part of that. But the afternoon prayer was the big one. Because I'm an early sleeper. That's right. right, To be fair. Because that's when everybody came back together um, at the end of the day. Because some people were teaching at a college. Some were teaching at the high school. But we were all there for that. And it was – I I always think about um, there was a – almost ritual to life. So we would go together. We would sit and we would watch the NBC nightly news. 
Um, and then we would go. So that would be like um, uh, that would be for half an hour. Then we would go do our afternoon prayer. And then we would no. I take that back. We do afternoon prayer. Then we'd go watch NBC Nightly News. Then we would go eat together. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was sort of focusing on different things. Like when we did the prayer, that was like about our community and ourselves. The news was connecting us to the world, mm-hmm. and then the meal was connecting us to our our little community mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really powerful. Like it's a powerful thing. I would say that at the time, that was my biggest takeaway from that. Is like. You, we could work hard. We lived lives of work and study, and 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 like we could work very hard, and we were and and but that that sort of prayer centralized it. Now being older, um, so I'm 40 now. So this has been almost 20 years ago. The thing that I appreciate about it now, which I didn't understand as much then, really was some of the stuff that Benedict was interested in, which is what does your life look like if you dedicate your life to work and service. And the uh, and you don't worry about the other things. Mm-hmm. So like I didn't worry about what I was going to eat, where I was going to sleep, what work I was going to do. I didn't worry about money. So I I tell students I made a hundred dollars a month and didn't spend a penny of it. <laughs> like I didn't like there was it was just like I didn't make any money. I also didn't have anything to spend money on. Like it was, and I realized like there's something to how powerful your life can be if you commit it to to something like that. Um, and it was it was really a, it was really a wonderful experience. And I think. I, mean, I, I there obviously are there are ways that Protestants try to do this. I mean, um, about a decade ago, we interviewed Shane Claiborne, yeah. sort of the you know uh, new monasticism within Protestant communities. And there's some elements, you know, that that when he would talk, right, I'd be like, oh, I kind of I kind of felt that, I kind of remember that. But but I think this idea of, of sort of these in, intentionally committing your lives in that way um, was really was really a powerful and important thing. Um, and I you know. I think if I were alive in the Middle Ages, I probably would have been a monk. Like that, I think that's my wiring as part mm-hmm. of it too. Yeah. yeah, or I mean, a member of another kind of fraternity, or later you got the, um, you know, was it the thirds of the Franciscans mm-hmm. or the Brethren of the Common Life? I mean, there there is this kind of monastic or monastic like impulse of communal life structure around work, prayer. Um, it's very appealing. I kind of feel like every Protestant has to go through some moment of at least kind of longing for a monastic sure. life. Like I. I mean, oddly for me, this happened when I got married. Like, I remember, like, that's the summer I got married was the same summer meeting where I had been reading, like, Kathleen Norris or Dennis Eckholm or someone and came to our meeting and said, we need a whole lecture on early monasticism. And, and you know, by this point, it's been whittled down to, like, 10 minutes. Did you ever Anthony. give that lecture? Or was oh, it, yeah. Okay. Oh, Because I, I gave it a lot. but I, I not only it. gave it, but, like, I also tried to get us to start a blog in which we would all write about spiritual disciplines. And you wrote your um, version of... It was your diary, but it was not the Genesee diary, but it was... The, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, that was how, like, dedicated... I, I thought this is great. And then it took me all of about a year and a half, and I realized I'm not a contemplative. Um, like, it, it's hard enough just, like, living with my wife and my kids, <laughs> and it's gone away. But, I mean, I think there is a sense, like, we recognize something has been lost, and, and you know, we find ways to recreate it. Like, this comes up in pietism and Wesleyan studies, like, the nature of the small group or the cell group. Like, how do we find ways in a modern life where we do have these kinds of workaday anxieties mm-hmm. To reconstruct that kind of community and that kind of rhythm and that kind of attentiveness to the word and to each other and to the needs of the world. And what I don't know is if you can really do that piecemeal. If yeah. You can be like, well, I'm in this group and we kind of do some of these. or cause, Because that was that was my big thing in Mobile is like I got to like really do yeah. it for, you know, for nine months. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a frustration I kind of feel like 
around here. Like all of a sudden, something from the past to be trendy, whether it's monasticism. Right? I think like Anabaptists were, were like someone had read Yoder or Hauerwas or probably Greg Boyd, and like all of a sudden, all these Bible majors were Anabaptists for like two minutes. But it's a very selective kind right. of appropriation of it, it. It reminds me of when I was in Mobile. I I, I spent a lot of time reading. Uh, Henry Nowen and uh, Thomas Merton and people like that. I remember I was reading Merton's Seeds of Contemplation, and one of the older brothers walked up to me and said, that guy got more out of nine months of silence. than <laughs> It's like he made his career on that. And like, they were sort of taking a shot at the idea of, like, yeah. like he hung out with Trappists for a while, but, like, the Trappists were Trappists. Like, they really did this stuff. And it's like, you, you can learn enough to write a book, or you can really do it. And it's cool to see a monk rip on, like, Thomas Merton, another monk, right? I also like the idea that this order of yours in Brooklyn are kind of the hipster monks That's of right. the world right now. Yeah. Like they're artisanal waters. And, okay, let's move on to a, to a, a final theme that I want to pull out of uh, Chris's book and see if this you know um, kind of connects with anything we talk about, Sam, or if this makes sense. I, I mean, even from the very beginning, before he even kind of dives into the specific chapters, I mean, maybe the most important thing Chris thinks that we've lost, at least in part because of the Reformation, is... Uh, he writes it this way. Whenever it happened, um, we've suffered a modern disenchantment of the material universe, which has hidden from us the spiritual importance of both creation, God making all flesh, and incarnation, God becoming flesh. So here, a famous monastic, Gregory the Great, spiritual father of the Middle Ages, whose writings filled the cupboards of great monastic libraries, insisted that while pastors or lay people were engaged in the act of life, Everything in their experience and everything in the world becomes a potential instrument of God's direct special communication to them. Chance meetings, storms, speaking of Luther, uh, landscapes, crafted objects, a thousand other things. God is always speaking to us if we but have ears to hear and eyes to see. Gregory emphasized, quote, God's involvement with creation and the sacramental presence of spiritual truths in the things of this world. And then Chris continues, The sense of God at work in the material world and in our own embodied material, social, and cultural experience became part of the Orthodox Christian understanding of the world for the whole period from Gregory to the Reformation and in many circles before and after this period. This was not pantheism, you know, God being everything and everywhere, but rather the sense of both God's glory reflected in creation and God's grace working through ordinary things in creation. And he doesn't lay this all at the feet of the Reformation. I think it's more the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. And I'm sure we'll talk about this on a future episode, but that's what I keep coming back to is, like, can you can you tease out a version of a story where the Reformation isn't followed by the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment? Yeah, So, but, but here's the difference. Uh, Chris says, Medievals, on the other hand, saw God reflected and actively at work in every aspect of the created world. Theirs was a world of built-in significance. What would a medieval person looking up at the night sky have actually seen? To become that ancient night watcher, says C.S. Lewis, quote, you must conceive yourself looking up at a world lighted, warmed, and resonant with music. Unquote. The medieval cosmos was one of vibrancy and wonder. Uh, and there's kind of this, like, built-in significance, and, and God can reveal himself anywhere in, in very ordinary things, but also in very supernatural, extraordinary things, right? And so, Chris, you know, I, I remember, like, reading early in the blog, he would talk about sacramentalism. And I remember trying to work that theme into a, a lecture. Um, he had given us this notion of, we, we use this idea of habitation as a way to understand how civilizations erected. And he said, well, what, what's the mental furniture that fits in? And this was a medieval piece of mental furniture. 
the importance of the incarnation and the kind of sacramentality of, of life, not just of the sacraments themselves. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm not quite as sure how much I buy that the Reformation is what strips this away. But like, there is a moment in this course where we encounter mysticism. And they read, students read through a couple of visions of Hildegard of Bingen, the um, you know, kind of polyglot of the 12th century in Germany. And I, and I get to the end and I ask them, do you think this actually happened? Because she wrestles with this. She, she writes to the Pope. She writes to Bernard of Clairvaux asking, is this true? Should I tell people? Is this the devil speaking through it? What do we? And, and they say, you should. And people believe her. This is what gives her influence. And and our students never really know what to do with it. I mean, partly it's because we're using it also to illustrate a kind of medieval understanding of grace and sacraments and the role of the church. And these are Protestants who don't like that. But they also, I think they aren't prepared they are prepared in the abstract that God can still speak if God wants to, but they don't have experience of this. They don't expect that God speaks through storms or clouds or that there's a sense of music filling everything. Like, right? It's a, in some ways, it's a, it's both a very busy, noisy world and a much more quiet, ugly world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems twofold. It seems that there's the fact that. You know, it's, you said it's hard to know to, whether you can blame the Reformation for this. And I think if you were to say the Reformation is just Luther, it's like, well, then probably not. But the, the, the thing that Luther does is he begins this moment of questioning and questioning and questioning and what about this and what and 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 that's going to lead you to say well can we what what are the things that we can question and then you end up with scientific revolution alignment the other thing though is um luther's sola scriptura right the idea that if scriptures are authority did, did he wrestle some kind of authority or revelation from nature from mm -hmm. mysticism from these things and i think it's hard to say it's hard to be like a hardcore sola scriptura person and really mean it but then also be open to these other things yeah. you know like like i think that that be, that i think becomes the a big piece that probably helps kill that yeah i mean i think another way of looking at this is um the reformation also unleashes something you can see in the late middle ages which is a kind of um self-styled prophetic apocalyptic tradition which is going to be very uncomfortable for these magisterial reformers who are allied to the structures of their time, but all of a sudden some of their followers start getting visions and hearing God speak to them and not just in quiet things, but in very loud voices that are going to disrupt everything and bring about the end of all times. And I, mean, I think this has been an interesting stream within Protestantism for a long time that you know it, it's, it's different than sacramentalism, but it, it is infused with the sense like God might speak to us in any moment and maybe outside of the settled canon of the written scripture that our pastors have been trained to exegete for us. And in some way, that's an even more direct kind of encounter with God that the Protestants are never quite sure what to do with. Uh, and that gets into maybe the second reason a book like this is helpful. You know, in a sense, like any Christian maybe who lives in the 21st century, at least in the West, you know, probably has some wisdom that they've been missing from the Middle Ages. And there'll be at least one chapter in here I think you'll find thought-provoking and maybe it'll lead you to read Gregory the Great or, or Hildegard or someone. But I think the second reason it's valuable to do this is that it helps you understand yourself better. You know, I mean, I think an image you sometimes use in our class is it holds up a mirror, you know, distantly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's reassuring and sometimes that's pleasing and sometimes it's um, it's actually, it's hard and it forces you to confront some things about yourself. So Chris has this really nice passage, which I won't quote all, but he kind of imagines like the weirdness of all of this. But then he turns it back on you and says, but wait a minute, maybe this is less about the weirdness of the Middle Ages and the weirdness of your own assumptions, you 21st century evangelical 
Protestant. And what he wants, I think, especially readers like us and our students and the people who would buy books from Brazos to think about is what he calls immediatism. And it shows up in a lot of ways. I mean, a kind of um, dismissal of the past and presentism. And Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Um, a kind of ruthless practicality. The only thing, I mean, I think of having been like a church leader. <laughs> it's like it's about numbers and growth and metrics and and, and maybe less of less patience with the slow arriving joys of church. Um, he talks about a kind of commonsensical approach to interpreting scripture. I mean, a kind of perspicuity, but it doesn't have as much room for scholastic reflection and for a monastic contemplation and for other kinds of tradition. And then most importantly, he says, it reflects this thing that does go back to the Reformation, at least in some sense, which is there can be, there need be no mediator between us and God. So that's the real immediate. It's, there is a lack of a mediator. In, in a sense, God reveals himself directly to us and primarily by way of his word in, in Scripture. So here, let me just read a little bit more of what Chris has to say, and then we'll see what Sam has to think about this. So in particular, um, Chris tries to point out why this is problematic with how we think about Scripture. The Bible is, as a set of human-mediated texts, complex, quirky, and many-layered, and therefore open to a wide array of interpretive approaches and understandings. It needs to be read and understood in and through human community, freshly for each context and historical moment. There are certainly many areas in which the voices of the canon speak, as it were, singly or in unison. But the canon cannot do so for us apart from a mediating communal process and context, that is, the Holy Spirit speaking through the Church, both historically and in the modern moment. Its truths cannot be accessed without any sustained effectiveness immediately, that is, without mediation by the individual believer reading his or her Bible alone in the closet by the light of a flashlight and individual reason divorced from the community of the Church. So I don't know if this is quite as far as... Uh, there's a book written by Christian Smith, who's an evangelical convert to Catholicism, a sociologist, called The Bible Made Impossible, in which he critiques what he calls biblicism, which shares at least some aspects with what Chris Armstrong here is, is describing. But it does suggest, like, if you understand sola scriptura as... So, like, really, nuda scripture and nothing else but scripture, only aided by common sense, plain reason, you know, all the essential truths available to any, even the most unlearned believer. Is it actually possible, or are you just setting yourself up for misunderstanding, failure, schism, you know, and, and all the rest? That, that does seem like a kind of legacy we'll need to wrestle with from the Reformation. Yeah. So I, I don't know that you have an answer. I mean, it is something we certainly talk about with students. Though. Yeah, because what I always try to get them to see is like, because they get excited for Sola Scriptura because yeah. it feels like now we know where to go. Here's our answers. And the fact that Sola Scriptura works for everyone as long as it's just working for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but once once you get into a conversation about it, you already have two perspectives on that and those perspectives line up until they don't and then there's and 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 the then then you add to it the tradition of the reformation of saying of division to say you know so so sola scriptura and a his and a uh, uh precedence for division over disagreement creates the the religious world of christianity we live in now yeah i mean the other side of this because I, I feel like I mean, we're intentionally trying to um, give as much credit as possible, I think, to the Middle Ages. Very pro-medieval today. Right, and there's the sense in which if I imagine myself as a medieval peasant slogging 
I mean, through my life in in France somewhere. I, I'm not sure how much I see like the wonder of the and the sacramentality of existence. I, I'm I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, I will say like. If I'm going to celebrate the Reformation, I, I do basically want to celebrate the idea that the Bible is made widely available in the vernacular to um, people across social spectrums of both genders, of all sorts of learning, right? And that that's something we should probably mostly celebrate. Now, I want to condition that and say, like, vernacular Bible is available in the Middle Ages. Um, I'm reading Brad Gregory's book about Luther now called Rebel in the Ranks, and he points out that before Luther does his German New Testament, there are at least... I think he says like 20 German and Dutch translations of the Bible. They're just not widely circulated and widely accessible, and they don't have kind of Luther's celebrity force behind them. And I've got a blogging colleague named Beth Allison Barr, who's a medievalist at Baylor, who her study is about the use of the vernacular and teaching the Bible in English sermons in the late Middle Ages. And she can even go through and make a list of like, you know, the top 10 Bible verses. She did a post once where um, Bible Gateway, the big website, has like the most commonly accessed Bible verses. They tend to be kind of all over the place, like the epistles, the psalms are popular. If you just look at, like, what's recorded of medieval sermon, it's all gospel. Mm. It's only the four gospels, and especially, I think, Matthew and John, probably. Um, so, like, you hear the Bible in the vernacular, but there is a sense of you need mediation to get to it. Mm. And I think Chris does acknowledge this becomes the problem, right, is you can control that, you can stifle a kind of uh, a spirit-led discussion of the text, right? Um, and... I mean, I think it's why, like, our pietist ancestors get really wary about giving institutional churches too much power to control the Word of God. And instead, like in the book that we just wrote, Mark writes about the Bible as this living altar that we all come to to be changed. You know, and, and I'm not sure that fits comfortably with how medievals think about it. Right. But, but the thing you need to accept, though, is if you're going to accept that view of Sola Scriptura and Bible in people's hands, you also need to be open to diversity. Yeah, uh, right, you know. right. But the problem is that that well, what we see in the Reformation is there's not necessarily always that happening. Yeah, and, and there actually is a kind of I mean, I think we're also prone to seeing the Middle Ages as, you know, for better or for this one church, right? Sure. And there's actually a tremendous amount of diversity within this one institutional church. I mean, just think about monastic orders and fraternities and confraternities right. and guilds and national variations. Well, it reminds me of growing up Catholic and, and, and knowing people who liked Catholicism precisely because it was so big that you could find yourself in it. Yeah. And, which, is, which is kind of, because you think, well, it's so big and such a monolith that like you have to agree with it. But it's, it's sort of like once it gets so big, it's like I can be over here and view, the, and, and like, and I knew priests this way. We're like, the, I remember asking priests questions, and they'd be like, "Here's what we're supposed to tell you." But I kind of wonder about this and this, and it's like, "Oh, this is like a." I'll, I'll use the the words I often use when I talk about Christianity. This is a deep enough river that mm. you can find places. It's deep enough for all of this, but it's all still the same river. Yeah. Um, and 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 Catholicism had that, especially I would say the Catholicism that I grew up in had that, and it's why. Um, I know such a wide array of Catholics that I grew up with. Yeah, and we'll come back to that because that's also shaped by the Catholic Reformation, which I think we'll get to in maybe our fifth or sixth episode. But I think we've reached the end of what we want to say about the Middle Ages. Well, actually, we'll kind of continue in this vein. Next time, I want to talk about Reformation as a late medieval concept, reformers before Luther, and maybe even play around with some historical counterfactuals. Like, could the Reformation have happened earlier? How would that have happened? Who could have been what Luther became? Is that the great what ifs? The great what ifs.
So uh, join us for that next week. Okay, if you liked what you heard, you can read more of my musings on Christianity, history, and education several times a week at the Pietist Schoolman and every Tuesday at the Anxious Bench. And if you do like uh, medieval things, uh, read Beth Allison Barr's material at the Anxious Bench as well. My newest book, The Pietist Option, is available from Amazon and other major retailers. The Pietist Schoolman podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was produced and engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening.